Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for people who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, I am beyond delighted to welcome back to this podcast, Dr. Don Berwick. We're going to be covering three specific topics today that in part really speak to the health of American healthcare. Before I formally introduce Don Berwick, I'm going to make a request of you. If you listen to the podcast and you find value in it, I'd like you to rate it on the app that you're using. The ratings actually help listeners find the podcast. A number of you have already begun rating the podcast and sharing it through LinkedIn and Twitter. And, and to those of you, I just want to say, I greatly appreciate you taking a moment to spread the podcast and more importantly, to spread the word on creating a new healthcare. Now, I'm going to just take a moment to introduce our, our guest today, Dr. Don Berwick is a president emeritus and senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, an organization he co-founded and led as their president and CEO for 18 years. He is one of the world's leading authorities on healthcare quality and improvement. He's an elected member of the Institute of Medicine, has served two terms on the IOM's governing council, and was also a member of the IOM's global health board. He's also served on President Clinton's advisory commission on consumer protection and quality in the healthcare industry. Dr. Berwick's body of work and his contributions to the field of healthcare quality and safety are really unparalleled. He greatly contributed and, in fact, I think led the publication of the landmark 2001 Institute of Medicine report crossing the quality chasm, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with, as well as the landmark IOM to air is human report. In 2004, Dr. Berwick and the IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, launched something that was absolutely brilliant and unprecedented, the 100,000 Lives Campaign, enrolling something like 31 hospitals in six major quality and safety initiatives. And that was followed by another campaign, if you recall, the 5 Million Lives Campaign, really just landmark campaigns and initiatives in the field of quality and safety in American and, and quite honestly, global healthcare. Dr. Berwick has served as the vice chair of the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. In July of 2010, President Obama appointed Dr. Berwick to the position of the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, which he held until December 2011. He is a recipient of numerous awards. In 2005, he was appointed Honorary Knight Commander of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II. It is the highest honor awarded by the UK to non-British subjects. And that was in recognition of Don's work with the British National Health Service. I can go on and on. He's the author and co-author of well over 160 scientific articles. By this point, I think it's well over that. Can't keep up with it. He's a pediatrician, has served as clinical professor of pediatrics and healthcare policy at the Harvard Medical School, professor of health policy and management at the Harvard School of Public Health, and as a member of the staff of the Boston Children's Hospital Medical Center, the Massachusetts General Hospital, and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Don, I apologize for going on so long, but I could go on even longer. How are you today? I'm doing well, Zevin. Thanks for the generous introduction. Well, I shared your background, your impressive background and accomplishments, and I would like to add a, another note to it. And I think it's important to really frame 
the conversation we're going to get into today, because I, I want people to understand your background and specifically about what you're seeing in American healthcare today. I really think it's important. Let me just say this, and this is a little bit of a side note here, but I've known you as a leader for about two decades and had the good fortune of meeting you when I was back in Boston a couple of times. I've seen you on the stage so many times and have read so many of your works over the course of the past two decades. I just want to say this, you always have courageously and brilliantly cut to the realities of our healthcare system. And you always bring data with you. You have a profound discernment and you bring goodwill with it, laying bare the truth for all to see. And you also make the call on the critical decisions that need to be made at the time. And even beyond that, you go beyond that to really lay out thoughtful, evidence-based pathways and roadmaps for action. This is something I've seen you do over and over and over again for the last 20 plus years. You write, speak, and act with intellectual integrity, originality, and with intellectual rigor, and with a powerful, powerful sense of empathic leadership. I have to say, Don, in all truth, it's a bit unsettling, but it's incredibly compelling, incredibly inspiring, and beyond motivating. And you speak and write with a humility and a practical down-to-earth sensibility that is so, so rare in, in our world today where there's so much ego and so much pomp and circumstance. And if someone said to me, who would you love to emulate? It would be you, Don. From my perspective, you are the truth bearer of American healthcare. And I think in some ways, as a result of that, you're also the ethical lightning rod of American healthcare for better and for worse. And I say this again, Don, hope I'm not embarrassing you, but, and I say this not just to honor you, and I do believe you need to be honored for what you've done and what you bring and what you continue to bring. I mean, your articles, just one after another, are breathtaking in terms of just how data-driven they are, how real they are. And, and you say the unspoken things that, quite honestly, no one else is saying. But I really wanted to share this with the audience today to really frame the conversation, who we are listening today. So I'm sure you have comments and thoughts about what I shared. And before we dive into the questions, I just want to give you a chance if you do have something to say. Well, only Zev, that you touch me deeply with your remarks. I, I'm, I'm very, very grateful to you. And back at you, I've watched you as a leader for the same decades. And uh, you know, you show incredible integrity and clarity. And uh, it's, it's just, it's fun to work with you. A lot of what you said, um, I know, is actually has to do with accomplishments of not me, but a community of effort, uh, IHI, the Institute of Healthcare Improvement, and then literally thousands of people around the world who work on improving care. And I just get to be part of that. So, but, but thank you so much for being, for being so generous. I think that's a really great point. There are thousands and thousands of folks out there who, who are dedicating their lives and their careers and a lot of energy and time to really understanding healthcare and improve. And I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think quite honestly, I suspect the people who are listening to this are part of that group. So thank you for saying that. Let's dive in here. When we last spoke, you shared with me some concerns about the state and direction of healthcare in America. And I want to get into a couple of other specific topics just to foreshadow for the folks who are listening. I think we're going to get into a little bit about Medicare Advantage and a couple of articles that Dr. Berwick and Dr. Rick Gilfillan co-authored and published in Health Affairs in September of 2021, just this past September. So I want to get into that. I also want to get into a topic that, Don, you're very concerned about, which is climate change. 
And those will be two topics. But before we dive into that, I, I really want to get your perspective about how you see, I mean, being a leader in healthcare for decades now and being a driver of the direction of healthcare, what concerns you now with what's happening in American healthcare? Well, I try to remain an optimist and in many ways I am. I think that knowledge growth continues in healthcare. We know a ton on the basis of which we could improve the well-being of populations uh, and individuals. Um, I think we're more aware of some of the defects in healthcare. I think the George Floyd murder has moved um, and, and the Black Lives Matter movement have moved uh, equity finally to center stage in our conversations. Um, I think the pandemic has awoken us more to the need for solidarity and thinking as a, not just a, a national community, but a global community. Um, so, you know, there are, there are good trends and I have to commend the biosciences for having produced the vaccines on such short notice that shows us what we are capable of technically when we need to be. But I must say, despite my trying to cling to optimism, I'm, I'm in a, I'm very worried right now. I think that healthcare in the United States is, it's got some very serious problems that are going to continue to erode public health and the public treasury unless we do something about it. it, it the, the basics for me, uh, to be pretty blunt about it, is that money's in control. We, we, we have become much too much for my taste, the financially driven and financially controlled uh, enterprise. I see healthcare as a human right. I see the pursuit of health as a public good. And right now privatization and uh, profit and greed, profiteering, and not, not criminal behaviors, very rarely criminal behaviors, but within the boundaries of the law, the ability to orient healthcare much, much toward revenue and profit and short-term thinking. Uh, it's, it's a serious problem, I think. We're seeing in the forms of um, mainly price increases, market consolidation price increases uh, in healthcare that, have, that we've just been completely unable to control. <clears throat> I see the public health care, health insurance system, Medicare, under siege now. That's what Rick and I wrote about, which I'm happy to talk to you more about. And I deeply believe in government's role uh, as a, uh, at least as an insurer of last resort, if not the sole insurer. The workforce is on its heels um, uh, for many, many understandable reasons, uh, but we can't have the healthcare we need with a workforce that isn't feeling buoyant. And right now uh, we're having some real troubles in the workforce. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty difficult time and to make it even more of concern, the fundamental shift we need, the tectonic shift we need, I think, is to refocus uh, public and private investment in um, social uh, influences on health. We know what they are, and we continue to underinvest in them. And uh, I, I think until we reverse that trend, we're going to be a, a much less healthy nation than we need to be at much higher cost. So I don't, I don't mean to be a downer here. I mean, I, 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 do, I am what you asked, and I'm worried. I have great faith in the workforce. I have great faith in the science. I have great faith, ultimately, in the wisdom of democracy. But I would, be, I would not be honest if I didn't say I was concerned. You've said so much. Maybe it's this question here of typically asking a question like this of some of the interviews I conduct around at, at the end about what recommendations or if you are sitting, if you could sit with folks in the federal government, whether it's in the White House or, or at CMS or CMMI or HHS or Congress, all of whom you've spoken to, 
but if you had that opportunity, I guess, as well as CEOs in hospital systems and payers, what would you say to them and maybe pick one group or pick all of them and what sorts of directions? And my guess is you, you have that ability to have that audience if you've not already had it recently, but what, what kind of message do you have, whether it's to the hospital CEOs or to the insurance payer CEOs or pharma or at the federal level, you've expressed your concerns, which I think are absolutely valid. What, what kind of message would you have? What kind of direction, what kind of roadmap? Uh, well, I don't want to claim to have all the answers. Uh, unfortunately, it's easier to see the problems than the solutions, but there are some things I wish would happen. Um, and remember, healthcare is embedded in the greater society, which also is having difficulties right now. And I'm not sure that we can address the problems of health and well-being in the country without uh, reference to the larger picture. We have uh, we have some some pretty basic uh, foundational ideas behind our democracy under siege right now. Uh, the attack on voting rights is not irrelevant. Uh, it relates to con who's in control, who actually is, it, whose interests are going to be served. We have a constant assault on the on the integrity of the safety net in this in this country. We have uh, blaming of uh, people who are at great disadvantage, uh, and of course the continuing um, wages of racism in a in a in a society that is not yet really grappled effectively the long haul with that. And healthcare is embedded in all of that. So I, I could critique healthcare and make suggestions for it, but there, it's hard to get traction when, the, when the, the basic direction of policy is so troubled in the country. That said, uh, I think here are some messages for healthcare. The first is we really need to go back and revisit foundational values. I once, I, I once heard and often repeat uh, an aphorism that when, when values are are strong, rules are unnecessary. When values are weak, rules are ineffective. Value, it's all about values. What do we really care to accomplish? And right now, I would love to see a reaffirmation of some basic tenets, among them that healthcare is a human right, that we ought not to be a country which denies anyone access to the care they need. Uh, we need to commit ourselves to the idea the pursuit of health is not by any means accessible through the healthcare system alone. On the contrary, healthcare is a relatively minor determinant of health status. And unless we invest in the conditions of children and early childhood and our education systems, our, uh, our supports for aging, our workplaces, our infrastructures and communities, unless we make those investments, we can't get healthy. And that has to be a basic chartering idea. Uh, as I must credit, you know, the Biden administration has moved policy, tried to move policy in the direction of all of government approaches to health, all of society approaches to health against some pretty significant headwinds. I think we need to put healthcare on a diet. Uh, we are at uh, approaching 20% of GDP, $4 trillion. That's too much, much, much too much to spend on healthcare. We don't need to. My career, my whole career has been devoted in, in, in part to understanding the levels of waste and, and ineffectiveness and, and uh, non-value-added activities in healthcare, including the effects of, of, um, of a revenue-driven uh, acquisitive system. So we need policy. We need to come to grapple with that. You, you want to talk about the article Rick Gilfillan and I wrote that is show pointing out where money is available with no harm to people. We need the guts 
to go get it. I think we need um, some courage in Congress to do that. The lobbying, uh, the status quo has lobbyists, the future does not. And um, at least not at the same level. And, and we've just got to find a way to overcome that. I wish that we could forge a coalition of common interest around this this pursuit of well-being and 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 uh, more rational approaches to healthcare. In fact, most Americans would be better off. Business would be better off. Workers would be better off. Certainly, uh, uh, patients would be better off. But somehow, the political heft in healthcare shifts over toward uh, the incumbent economic interests, and, and we need courage to stop that. At, at a local level, I, I gave a speech in December, which I'm writing about want to pursue. It's a kind of semi-psychotic speech about, I call it 10 teams. And it actually is calling on healthcare systems, hospitals, especially in, healthcare, in large healthcare integrated systems to take up the baton on social influences on health at a level they never have before. I'm challenging hospital, every hospital in America to set up 10 teams each team devoted to working hard in the local area on one of the social determinants of health, like food security, housing security, criminal justice, uh, voting rights, um, and more. Uh, I, I would love to see that voluntary voluntary investment occur, maybe leading others, including policymakers, to make changes. That's a long answer, Zev. It's a tough problem. It's. A brilliant answer. And let me dig into a couple of things. The notion, the pursuit of health being something that is much, much larger than the healthcare industry. I think that was one of your first responses. And so taking that to your last response about the 10 teams, it seems to me, I love that. I have to say in the organization I'm in right now, we're actually uh, we have a social impact strategy and we're doing some of that. I think that other organizations, other hospital systems and healthcare systems around the country. I, I guess my question though, to your first point is it seems to me, and maybe I'll make an editorial comment and love you to respond to it. It just seems to me that the notion that we, we keep healthcare in CMS or HHS is incredibly limiting. And I think misguided given what we know today. And I think this is consistent with what you're saying it seems to me we need some sort of more interdependent approach. So we need other departments, literally at the level of secretaries and at the level of the White House, we need interdependent teams working together. And it's almost taking your 10 teams approach and saying, how do we do this in a way where we don't just point our finger at the HHS and say, you take care of healthcare, we'll take care of other things. And so I, I guess, one, I'd love to hear your thought on that. And second, just bring it to the level of hospitals. In your 10 teams, are you, are you recommending that hospitals, healthcare systems bring in other departments as well? Uh, yes, to, to your last point first, nothing about my recommendation, if I can put it that way, for the, this 10 teams approach says healthcare should take over the, either, even the leadership of pursuit of better circumstances to produce health. But it has to be a very avid, active, and generous partner in that. Take, take criminal justice reform. We have a broken, brutal, abusive uh, criminal justice system in this country, with some exceptions, regional exceptions. But overall, it's racist. We, we incarcerate uh, African Americans at seven times the rate of whites. We incarcerate Latinx Americans at five times the rate of whites. We have uh, no real plan for restorative justice. 
alternatives to prisons. We're privatizing prisons. We have very little support for reentry in most places in this country for returning citizens. Now, that's a big problem affecting 2.3 million people incarcerated uh, in the United States at any particular time, 10 million cycling through jails. There ought to be an agenda for complete reform of our criminal justice system. Can healthcare lead that? It can become a very active player in that, certainly directly by the way it deals with the healthcare needs of people who are incarcerated, but also becoming a vocal advocate in communities for understanding the, 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 the state of the incarcerated population, 70% of whom have mental illness or, uh, or, or problems with substance misuse. Uh, it is a healthcare issue, but I can see a convening process that a hospital could engage in at a community saying, let's get this fixed. Mm-hmm. The same would go for early childhood experiences. We know these are strong mm-hmm. determinants of adult health status, probably the biggest of all. And I've seen in other countries leadership from healthcare systems for mobilizing communities to actually begin to have systematic ways to deal with the needs of uh, early childhood. So healthcare as a participant, y- y- yes, for sure. Uh, the first part of your question, though, Zev. Yeah, the first part was just I was thinking at the federal level. This. Oh yeah, the federal level. Yeah. You know, WHO and has long had uh, brilliant materials on all of government approaches to health, um, <laughs> and uh, it, it is the only way to do what we're talking about. Exactly as you said, that, that when we think about the well-being of the population, we need to center the aim in the middle of the target. That would as my administration is trying to do with equity right now, and say if the aim is health and well-being, there really is no cabinet department that is not a potential effector of improved health. And I would, this requires a White House-level leadership with specific goals for improvement of well-being, which there would be regularized meetings at the cabinet level saying, what is, what is each of these departments, labor and agriculture and transportation and, uh, and um uh, the environmental protection and defense and everybody, including HHS at the table saying, what, what, what part of this problem are you picking up? Take, for example, the opioid uh, uh, problem. It's still, now, what is it this year? A hundred million, a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand people Yeah. Uh, for Pete's sake. Uh, that would take all of government effort in which we really have, I, I must say, presidential leadership with time with deadlines and accountabilities that uh, are very hard to to recruit but you're absolutely right it has to be everybody at the table hhs has a key role no question Mm -hmm. but um it's not it's not for hhs or cms alone i think i might have said this to you i I wrote a letter to president biden which i actually never sent and it was this recommendation that either he or the vice president lead this cabinet level health initiative focused and again Maybe it's using your 10 teams concept, but pick a, a number of areas and, and it's got to be multifold and the social determinants of health have to play hugely into it. Opioids, another one, I mean, there are a bunch of, of items, the whole chronic disease, but, but it is engage all of the departments in the pursuit of health in our country. Again, as to your point, HHS is one of them, but it cannot be the only one. I never sent that letter, but I think you should send it. I mean, being president is really hard and you can imagine how many different uh, stakeholder advocates want the president to become the personal leader of uh, an all of government thing, be it climate change or equity or you name it. It, it. That would be a good way to make progress on anything. So, so there has to be some um, respect for the uh, difficulty of, of, of government at that level. On the other hand, 
this kind of um, tectonic change in investment won't occur without serious executive leadership. Um, and it would pay off handsomely. Of course, you need Congress too. And the paralysis in Congress right now in this mm. ongoing uh, polarization, and I must say the behaviors, uh, uh, the behavior, the behaviors of Republicans uh, are incomprehensible to me respect to the actual interests and needs of uh, our society for health and well-being. Hmm. You're really, really good and have this track record of looking outside, looking at other industries, looking at other countries as examples of what we could adopt that could help. Are there, it's a little bit of a kind of phone a friend sort of thing, but are there are there other industries that we could take a lesson from? Are there other countries that we could take a lesson from? Oh, for sure. Absolutely, for sure. I mean, I'd not to gainsay what's possible within the U.S. For almost any, for example, in the 10-team speech, which I, is now available, and uh, it's on YouTube, uh, oh. you know, in each case for each of the teams, I, I designate what I call uh, a coach and an exemplar. A coach is an expert, a scientist, or a researcher, or somebody who actually understands the scholarly foundations for action on something like criminal justice or climate change or, or, uh, or early childhood. And an exemplar is a healthcare organization that has taken the challenge in that area. And it's, you don't have to look outside the boundaries of the U.S. to find quite thrilling examples. It's just a matter of scale and enrollment for many of these things. But outside the U.S., there's even more going on. Um, I'll give you three quick examples. Uh, Scotland has been doing some wonderful work now for more than a decade on early childhood. They have something called the Early Years Collaborative, now called the Children and Youth Collaborative which is the Scottish National Health Service working with the, all of the municipalities in Scotland to kind of get the backs of kids and have systematic plans for uh, helping them with uh, safe birthing and uh, early, uh, early bonding and school readiness. A very interesting program with quite a bit of success so far. Uh, in England, where the National Health Service is, uh, has its troubles, it, 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 you know, it's not always perfect by far, but the, um, they're going through a statutory change now, which will reorganize all of the care systems in England around uh, what they call ICSs, integrated care systems, population-based, uh, unified delivery systems to serve populations between maybe 500,000 and 2 million or so. This is a chance to really reorganize care around population needs. And I, I'm watching it with enormous interest in some of the, the early uh, leaders in the ICS stuff in England, they could teach us a lot. They're learning from us too. They're studying us. They're studying our ACOs. They're studying our, our HMOs. But uh, there's a two-way street there. Um, I've been very interested in, in Taiwan and in uh, Singapore. Both countries uh, are trying to develop integrated all-of-government approaches to certain health issues. Taiwan, for example, has had uh, a plan not yet executed, but, but, but developed for helping with aging in the country. And it's, it's exactly the kind of multi-sectoral approach that you're talking about. So if we're willing to be curious, we'll learn a lot. And I must say that also applies to low-income countries. Um, uh, Lord Nigel Crisp in England has written a book about the, this learning from, low, uh, from austere settings about how that information can apply to, um, to uh, wealthy countries. Because the agility that you see in, uh, in community-based efforts in northern Ghana or in parts of South Africa or uh, in, uh, in, in 
in countries under quite a bit of stress is very interesting where they're able to mobilize resources and get dramatic results that would be hard to, hard to achieve in a developed country. So there's two references. One is that talk you mentioned, your 10 teams talk on YouTube, and I'm going to put that in the notes and look it up myself. I'm now super interested to hear it. And the book you just mentioned by Lord Nigel Crisp, how, how do you spell his last name? C-R-I-S-P. Okay. Um, and it's called, I think it's called The World Turned Upside Down. You need to check me on that. But it's a quite a nice book uh, describing uh, importable lessons from, uh, from uh, low in, lower income settings and austere settings mm-hmm. uh, for developed, the developed country, really, really with enormous respect for the intelligence and agility and creativity going on in some of the poorest places on earth. It seems to me, I mean, this direction we said, if we had a cabinet level group led by the president or vice president with, with the cabinet members focused on learning from some of these bright spots, both within the United States, as well as looking outside the United States and looking at the literature and guided by different organizations and then launching these interdependent programs and initiatives. Is there, I mean, you, you sit on so many significant committees and in and, and so many leadership roles currently whether it's the NAM or others, or is something like this happening now? Are we, is it already happening in some ways? Yes, it's trying to happen. The, uh, I, the Biden administration, for example, uh, has since the moment uh, this president took office has been focused on equity as uh, one of the top tier goals. And they have organized uh, equity oriented work across cabinet departments and uh, it's quite clear the president, oh, I haven't talked to the president, but I, quite clear from watching behaviors uh, that, that this is something that is being led right out of the Oval Office. Um, in HHS, there's a new office for climate change and health okay. equity that uh, is, is led by the uh, Assistant Secretary for Health, Dr. Rachel Levine, and they're serious. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll say that I have not had a single conversation that I can recall with anyone significant in the current federal uh, uh government on the political side who hasn't begun with equity as a goal. It, it's pretty stunning. Mm-hmm. Uh, same is going on with climate change. Unfortunately, Congress has not stepped up. They really need to. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a terrible misservice to the future. Mm-hmm. But the, you can't blame the Fed president for this because the, the federal government has really organized around decarbonization and climate change as much as is possible to do. I, if Congress would get on board, we could really make much more progress. But I'm seeing that kind of whole of government approach. The other, the other thing to keep in mind is there are public and private sector uh, efforts that where truly combined effort uh, can produce better results. Um, I, I, I believe government has an essential role. I don't think you can leave this kind of stuff to markets, but you can incorporate energy and interest from the private sector, as we saw in the vaccine development world mm-hmm. um, for COVID. Uh, and, and you know there is, a, there is something possible there. The National Academy of Medicine has established under its president, uh, Victor Zhao, a program on um, decarbonizing healthcare. It's one of Dr. Zhao's uh, grand challenges uh, and he means it and you can watch it. And what he's done is pulled together a steering committee and leadership team to oversee this that shows, I think quite a bit of good energy on both the public and the private side. The the, the co-chairs of that effort cross the boundaries of government and private sector work. And so I, I believe in that kind of partnership if we can really get it done. Congress is a problem. It's got to step up to this and it's just not doing its job. Mm. Yeah. Wanted to dive into, you've mentioned climate change a number of times. 
maybe we could spend a, a few minutes now. Why is for for those of us who don't really understand climate change and its impact on health as well as the healthcare industry, could you give us a little bit of a primer and some insight into that? Sure. Uh, this has been on my screen, I guess, about four years now. Uh, so I'm by no means an expert. I'm standing on the shoulders of people who spent their careers working on this. But uh, it, it is quite clear now that climate change is a major threat to human health. In fact, the World Health Organization last year declared uh, climate change the number one threat to health on the planet. That threat plays out through uh, biology, new zoonoses, uh, you know, changing the changing the profile of, uh, of, of disease threats. It plays out through uh, climate refugees and dislocation, which creates enormous both security problems and health problems. It plays out through uh, food shortages and water shortages. Imagine when the Indian subcontinent runs out of water as the glaciers of the Himalayas are gone. Uh, think of what the world would be like. It plays out through uh, weather events and extreme, you know, extreme weather events. And you saw what happened in California with fires or in floods that would never have occurred before. So health, uh, climate change, global, global warming is a massive threat to human health now, but it's a boiling frog problem. It's going on and on and on. And we're acting as if, uh, well, we can just kind of wait. We can't wait any longer. The most recent IPCC report again shows, um, a very rapidly narrowing window for keeping us below disastrous levels of, of warming on the planet. Now, healthcare has two, a two direction relationship with this. Direction one is, as I said, climate change creates health problems, which we have to be ready for and deal with. Uh, if you think the refugee problem with Ukraine is a problem, imagine when 30 times as many refugees are flooding into out of countries threatened by, by sea level rise and water and food shortages, uh, it will be a major threat to human security around the world, plus new diseases, as I said, and, and other forms of trauma. The other direction is healthcare's footprint on climate change. Uh, healthcare is about eight and a half percent of all of the carbon production uh, in the world, in the US especially. And uh, if the healthcare world were a world country, we'd be the fifth largest producer of carbon in the world. So healthcare can decarbonize and needs to. It's part of the action. We can't solve the problem, but we have a duty to it. That's where Victor Zhao and the NAM have now put their stake in the ground. And uh, Admiral Rachel Levine at a recent COP meeting announced a goal for the country of a 50% reduction in, what, in greenhouse gas emissions uh, from healthcare by 2030 and from zero emissions by 2050, all achievable, absolutely achievable. This takes every single healthcare organization though to do its part. The National Academy has set up um, a collaborative, uh, action collaborative on uh, decarbonizing healthcare, in which I co-chair one of the components on policy finance and metrics, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an open door now for any healthcare organizations to get involved in becoming part of the solution to this problem. It's very big. I think, you know, thinking about running a hospital today with COVID and workforce shortages and, and uncertainties in payment and rising pharmaceutical costs and, you, you know, a long list, it's asking a lot to add climate change and decarbonization to the list, but nature's, nature's in charge here. And unless we respect what's going on, we will be devastating the future of, of the next generations. That was super. Thank you for that intro to this topic. 
and what's happening to address it. What's the time frame in terms of seeing some of the initial health-related issues? And again, I'm thinking about from a clinical perspective and healthcare perspective, people with pulmonary disease or or heart failure or other chronic diseases that are much more sensitive to some of this impact, even small changes in, in, in weather patterns and humidity and other related things. And some of the food shortage issues you're mentioning or water shortage issues, are, do you have a sense of, of when we would start to begin to see some of that? Oh, we are seeing it now. I'm, I'm not the expert in this. I don't want to go out over my skis too far, but the extreme weather events for starters are, are producing forms of trauma and mass casualties that uh, are large. But beyond that, I, there's evidence of already of, of um, increasing disease burdens, asthma, for example, uh, from what's fr- from the changes we're seeing. Um, th- but there will be more. But it's not. It's not. It's no longer the future. It's now our present. Um, the, the the urgency is that you can't. You know, car- uh, carbon dioxide's half life in the atmosphere is 100 years, and so unless we start to decarbonize now. You know, it won't be many decades before the, the disaster will be irreversible. Uh, the goals, as I say, that the administration has set up, uh, set out a 20, uh, 50% reduction of emissions by 2030, eminently achievable, can be achievable. It's not, it's not totally easy, uh, mm-hmm. but it can be done. And any, anybody listening to this podcast, Zev, who's interested, get on the National Academy website, uh, look for the decarbonization project and for, get involved. There'll be resources mm-hmm. there that'll teach you how to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there'll be exemplars ready to help you to hold your hand through it. Uh, Healthcare Without Harm, great organization. Now, many decades old has been on this for a long time. Get on their website. There are, there are roadmaps and guidebooks. Um, so it's possible. The, the, the damage is, start, is now and the, and the healing has to start now. Yeah, that's great. Healthcare Without Harm and, and the National Academy of Medicine. Yeah, I, I would be remiss not to mention the Institute for Healthcare Improvement has also started a wonderful collaborative called Climate Can't Wait, which I get, which I'm, I get to coach. So what we're doing hmm. in IHI in the Climate Can't Wait group is uh, finding organizations that want to get started and then linking them to the uh, knowledge base as fast as they possibly can and then helping them coach each other. So that's another place people go, IHI.org, and check out Climate Can't Wait. That's great. I want to jump to, in our last few minutes here to the two-part article that you and Dr. Gilfillan co-authored, which I have to admit, I, I had sitting on my desk for many, many weeks, if not months, and just read recently. And Don, I have to say, I was blown away by it. I've worked in population health for a number of years. I've worked with payers. I thought I was very familiar with how Medicare Advantage works and direct contracting and all that, but your paper and with you and Dr. Gilfillan pointed out was really, really startling. It almost to me read like an investigative report in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal. It really blew open the covers about what's been going on, what is going on in the Medicare Advantage market. In fact, I was talking to a colleague earlier this morning and I said, have you, and he's in population health. And I said, have you read these articles? And he said, no, I said, you need to read them like today. And the implications are real for everything. So I'd Love for you to, and I've got some specific questions and, and bullet points of, about what I gleaned from the articles, which again, I, I had some knowledge of because I've looked into this as well, but I suspect that most people have no idea what actually is happening in Medicare Advantage. And it sounds like MedPAC is, is aware of it and is taking some action. So 
if you could paint sort of the problem and then your take on it and perhaps who's responding to it and in what ways. That's pretty complicated stuff. I, I will <laughs> be bold enough to ask that you invite Rick and me back to another session and we'll dig into the Let's do that. detail. I know Rick would love to do that. And, and let me just say that um, anything good in those articles is, is Rick's doing. Rick is a, uh, in my opinion, genius. He, he, uh, his ability to understand finance and policy and healthcare together, plus being a great clinical mind um, is second to none. So I, I take little credit for the, for the, for what's good in those articles. Um, yeah, the basic, well, let me give you the basic outline. So mm -hmm. uh, Medicare founded in 1965 was government as insurer. Government is the insurance company for elder Americans. Uh, so government takes the money in taxes and then pays it out to your doctor or your hospital when you go for care. That's traditional Medicare uh, on a fee-for-service chassis so that uh, the way it pays is when you're admitted to the hospital, it pays the hospital DRG amount, or when you see the doctor, it pays for an encounter. 30 years ago or so, um, as the HMO movement was taking shape, people began to notice that health maintenance organizations, the good ones, Kaiser Permanente, Group Health Cooperative, Puget Sound, uh, Group Health and uh, uh, Health Partners in Minneapolis, Harvard Community Health Plan, they were doing really well. They were uh, lowering costs and improving outcomes, lowering costs by 15% or more, usually through avoiding unnecessary hospitalizations. Uh, and so the government wanted a piece of that. And Congress uh, enacted legislation that created a second kind of coverage in Medicare, which has gone through several names. Its current name is Medicare Advantage, in which government is not the payer, not the payer to the doctor. Government pays an insurance company in which a Medicare beneficiary can then enroll in a health plan, a Medicare Advantage plan. And from then on, the insurance company has taken the money from the government and then pays the, the providers for your care. So between the government and the patient and provider lies an insurer, a, a, a Medicare Advantage plan. And the original idea was, well, that'll, they'll then manage the care like good HMOs do. And the care, the care will fall in cost by 10 or 15%. And we'll be able to monitor it. It'll be better care because it'll be coordinated and prepaid. That's not what happened. Uh, for the first year or two, a little bit, but by five or six years into this journey, uh, the Medicare Advantage plans or the, their, their forerunners were actually costing more than traditional Medicare. And um, that has, trend has continued. Now, the controversy here is that the way they get the money is through case mix coding, case coding. Medicare pays more for the care care of a Medicare Advantage patient who has congestive heart failure than one who doesn't. Because there's a coding system in which doctors can enter diagnoses and they get added up. And so you, you get a different amount of premium when your patient has a lot of has, has diagnoses. But that system has gone awry. The diagnostic codes no longer bear relationship to the actual needs or care costs of the patient. The Medicare Advantage plans take more and more of that money as profit, uh, or they return it to beneficiaries in free care or uh, supplemental benefits. And over time, this has become a profiteering enterprise of the, of the greatest magnitude. Hmm. What Rick and I wrote about are how that works, how the games of coding, of, of case mix coding, without benefit to patients, line the pockets of the Medicare Advantage plans to the tune of literally 
possibly hundreds of billions of dollars over a five or 10 year period. There's lots of debate over, over this coding scheme and how much it's costing us, but it is rapacious. Uh, MedPAC has known this. Mm-hmm. They've created opportunities for uh, restraining it through adjusting for coding creep, but those that restraint has not been serious. And, um, uh, it's, and it's getting worse. It's essentially a subsidy in which the government through the Medicare trust fund and taxpayers and workers who pay Medicare, Medicare taxes and traditional Medicare beneficiaries are seeing their money transferred to the health plans, which then use part of that money to create free benefits and other attractors. So, you know, it's no surprise. Medicare Advantage grows steadily and traditional Medicare shrinks. Right now, this is the year, I believe, in which traditional med- in which Medicare Advantage will cross the 50% mark. 50% of Medicare uh, beneficiaries choose Medicare Advantage. And so this cross-subsidy and this profiteering uh, is at an all-time high. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a decision to make as a country. Do we want to preserve traditional Medicare, in which government is the insurer, or do we want to interpose uh, profit-oriented health plans who take their their tie, they take their 10 or 15% transaction costs, and in addition, find ways to sequester more and more money. Mm-hmm. I think it's way out of balance. MedPAC has courageously spoken about this, but the lobbying force of Medicare Advantage plans is absolutely, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's unstoppable. Indeed, just last week, believe it or not, Medicare, CMS announced an increase in payment to Medicare Advantage plans in 2023 of 8.5%. No, I know. I, saw, I was shocked when I saw that. I mean, that's going to further destabilize this situation. It yeah. is, um, it's time to put a stop to it. Yeah. And this is not benefit to patients, really. And Congress has at its disposal, if it wishes to, if it wish to deal with mm-hmm. this, I would say something of the several hundred billion dollars mm-hmm. over the next 10 years that it could get back with no harm to patients. Mm-hmm and put into all the other stuff we've been talking about, like social determinants of health or whatever yeah. accomplishments. Well, I think to your point, this money, folks are scratching their head and saying, you know, is this attack on capitalism or, or free market? The answer is absolutely not. I think to your point, this is, this is a significant chunk of money that should be going to actually help patients and the people that are actually putting money in, the taxpayers that are putting money into healthcare, this money should be going back to the people who need care, but it's not it's being pocketed. And so I, there, there's a small number of organizations and people, very small number that are benefiting while the overwhelming majority of the American public is not. And I think that's, for me, that's the bottom line. Yeah, the, the illusion that this, this is not a free market at work. This is arbitrage. This is absolutely guaranteed income to the, investing, to the investors' uh, plans uh, and uh, right out of the pockets of taxpayers and the trust fund and uh, mm-hmm. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a minimum unfair, unfair to those in traditional mm-hmm. Medicare, but it's very, very wasteful. Yeah. I'm sorry for ending on this sort of note, and I know I've got to get to your next meeting and phone call. It's just so amazing to have the opportunity to speak with you, the way you understand these concepts and the history and the present moment. I definitely would love to schedule a time to speak with you and Dr. Gilfill and dive into that MA because the details are really important and beyond fascinating and critical. Quick question. We started out and you have some concerns, frustrations. You talked about being a downer and all that, but at the same time, you also went on and on about all the 
amazing things that are happening at the federal level and nationally and internationally at NAM and WHO and all these efforts. And to me, I don't, I don't hear you and feel down. I hear you and feel very, very hopeful. What are you sensing now? What do you, how are you feeling actually right now? Well, they're frustrated, but aware of the abundance, the abundance of goodwill in the workforce, the, the abundance of uh, communities that want to be healthy, the abundance of scientific knowledge about how to achieve that, the abundance of good examples like we've talked about. I mean, we have so much to build on, uh, more than ever before in history, probably, and enormous social need, but uh, we have lost track of some core values here that we've got to reestablish. I think it's really about, to me, a sense of solidarity, connectedness that, you know, your, your fate and mine are, are connected and I want them to be. Mm-hmm. And um, when people are in trouble, you help them. I don't know what could be more a fundamental idea in modern in, in society than when people are in trouble, you help them. Um, we need to go back to these fundamentals and, um, and then hold our leaders accountable for acting that way. And we have seen in uh, much too much of an error right now of irresponsibility with respect to uh, these basic principles of compassion and connectedness. If we choose to embrace those values and act on them, my goodness, we have a lot to work with. Knowledge, a wonderful healthcare workforce, uh, communities that are smart, in love for each other. You know, the, the, these are, mm-hmm. these are resources and we shouldn't swamp them. Yeah. You started out with that. And I'm, I'm really glad that you started out by speaking about the sort of the central importance of identifying those values and living those values with integrity and you're ending with that. And I think what a great way to, to wrap this conversation up. Cause I, I do believe you, you hit the core issue with that notion of values and manifesting the values Don, I can't thank you enough for speaking with me and speaking with us. It's just such a pleasure and a gift. And thank you for your leadership. And thank you for for being that bellwether and that leader reminding us about the core values that we espouse and we should be acting on. I want to turn to our guests as I do every episode here. And, and I think you heard Dr. Berwick keep on talking about the great work we have in assets we have in in our healthcare workforce. So I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing this hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or, or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to uh, individuals, families, communities, and our society. My friends, until next time, be safe and be well. <laughs>